Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, this morning we're continuing our series, AD 30, on the life of Christ, and I want to talk about something called heart prep, or heart preparation. We all want to believe uh, that we are completely and entirely objective. We have an open mind. We're intelligent. We sort the pros and cons of every situation presented to us perfectly, and when we're thinking of ourselves, we're thinking, We get it. I get it. And that's why it's so frustrating to all of us when other people don't see things the way we see things, right? Uh, When there are four, five, or six political parties instead of just one, which is our party, of course. Or when there are four, five, or six religions instead of just one, which is our religion. Don't get me wrong. I believe some things are absolutely true and other things are absolutely false. And in lesser matters, where things may not matter quite as much, some arguments are more persuasive than others. My point is that we're not neutral. We're not sort of bland, empty canvases ready to be painted on. My point is that we bring biases into every area of our lives, including our spiritual lives. Jesus actually alluded to this many times, both directly and indirectly. It's what the parable of the sower is all about. You know where Jesus says a sower went out to sow and and in that culture you would sort of throw seed into the wind and it would hit these different kinds of soil. Remember that parable he told? He said some will hit the hard soil. It'll never really penetrate. Some will hit the stony soil where, where the seed will penetrate but there's sort of a limestone rock lay underneath and it'll quickly dry out. There'll be thorny soil where where the cares of the world sort of choke out the word of God, and there'll be good soil. Jesus is talking about the four different kinds of hearts that people bring into a reception of truth. It's why he also said in other situations, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is basically alluding to people's spiritual receptivity, their level of openness, It's why he actually called some people blind. He said other people were blind leaders of the blind. He's talking about their spiritual state because Jesus recognized we're not blank canvases. We're not neutral. Our receptors are broken. And Jesus is not alone in that. Many studies have shown that people tend to uh, exaggerate their own positive characteristics and abilities, for example. And this is a great example of how people don't see themselves objectively. I've probably alluded to this before. For example, studies have shown that most drivers think they're better than average drivers. Psychologists call this the state of illusory superiority. In 2014, a team of British researchers tested this common, better-than-average tendency by surveying convicts at a prison in southeast England about their pro-social traits. These were people who were young adults, 18 to 34. The majority had been jailed for violence and robbery. 
The inmates completed questionnaires anonymously and in privacy. Here's what they said. Compared with an average prisoner, the convicts rated themselves as more moral, kinder to others, more self-controlled, more law-abiding, more compassionate, more generous, more dependable, more trustworthy, more honest. Remarkably, they also rated themselves as higher on all these traits than an average member of the community. With one exception, law-abiding, they recognized they were in prison. They rated themselves as equivalent on this trait relative to an average community member. So here's a group of people who have been convicted of crimes, mostly pretty hardcore crimes. They're all in prison, and they're basically saying, I'm pretty much as moral and ethical as everyone else around me, and more so than many. That indicates that we kind of have issues, and you say, wait, but those are, those are criminals, they're convicts, there sort of must be something a little off in them that wouldn't be off in the average person. Well, listen to this. Study by a couple of researchers at the University of Toronto and at James Madison University in Virginia proves something that we may already know. The study, provocatively called cognitive sophistication, does not attenuate the bias blind spot. You can just forget that. Concluded that we cut ourselves more slack than we give to others. We're not objective. No surprise there, right? But writing about this study in The New Yorker, Jonathan Lair explains why we do this. We all have bias blind spots because there's a mismatch between how we evaluate others and how we evaluate ourselves. This is what happens. When considering the irrational choices of a stranger, for instance, we're forced to rely on how they behave. We see their biases from the outside, which allows us to glimpse their errors. But when assessing our own bad choices, we engage in elaborate introspection. We study our motivations and search for relevant reasons. We lament our mistakes to therapists and ruminate on the beliefs that led us astray. As an example, if we drive crazy through traffic, it's because we have an important meeting or we don't do it that often and so forth. But if someone else cuts us off in traffic, there's one simple observable explanation. He or she is a jerk. Lair concludes, our bias blind spots are largely unconscious, which means they remain invisible to self-analysis and resistant to intelligence. In other words, being smarter won't help you see your own junk. As a matter of fact, more intelligence may add to the problem. What they're saying is the smarter we are, the more we're able to justify our behavior. We still see other people's bad behavior as bad behavior, but we have an explanation for why ours isn't. We're good at this. We are not neutral and objective people. We're very self-justifying. To use the words of Jesus, which I think was a very sort of friendly term, we're lost. We're lost. And at times blind. And we have a sin problem. And here's the problem. And this is why I want to talk about this subject today. This lack of neutrality means that our spiritual receptors are broken. Particularly for people who have not come to faith, their spiritual receptors are broken and flawed. That means they may miss the voice of God. I'm not talking about an audible voice. I'm saying they may miss the voice of God, how God has revealed himself. They may miss the evidence. They may miss the truth. Jesus could be right in front of them, and they may miss Jesus, the Son of God. And that would not be new. In fact, think about this, historically, most people did. Most of the people who saw the Son of God in front of them, performing miracles, ultimately did not follow him. There's a spiritual receptivity issue there. 
and most people choose not to follow Jesus today regardless of the evidence. But there is a solution. It's the solution, the best solution we can come up with. Now the reality is, no matter what people have, no matter how much exposure people have to Jesus, Jesus even said following him is kind of the narrow path. It's never gonna be what everyone chooses to do, but the solution for those who will follow God, who are open to God, or who could become open to God, is for others to help with heart preparation in their lives. We wanna read Mark chapter one. Just a few verses here. Mark chapter one, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. There is a passage similar to this in each of the Gospels. This is one of those rare situations where all four Gospel writers include information. Uh, In this case, John the Baptist uh, is uh, talked about by Mark. Just a short little section. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, this is unusual. He's not starting with the birth narratives of Jesus. He's not trying to prove that Jesus necessarily is is Jewish because he's writing to a Roman church, most likely. So he just starts out with Jesus, the Son of God, and John the Baptist right before him. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, after me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Just three simple points out of this passage and then some applications. First, even the Messiah, the Son of God, needed a little help with heart prep. Why was John the Baptist here? Why is the gospel introducing John the Baptist as the first major event? Each of the four gospels do this. They don't all do it first, but they all do it. But I want you to think about this, why this was important. So from the third page of the Bible, In Genesis chapter 3, a conqueror is predicted. The seed of the woman will come and defeat Satan. Right after the fall, that prediction takes place. So from the third page of the Bible, we start seeing prophecies about who we know will be Jesus. Some of these prophecies follow along the line of his his Jewish heritage. Uh, We see that the field is narrowed. In Genesis 12, he's going to be a son of Abraham, so going to be Jewish. Eventually, from the line of Judah, one of those 12 tribes, from the family of David, he'll be a son of David. Eventually, he's going to be virgin-born. I would say that prophecy is actually in Genesis chapter 3, where it'll be the, the seed of a woman, which precludes or excludes a human father, but it's reinforced elsewhere. He's going to be born of a virgin, going to be born in Bethlehem. We ultimately have hundreds of prophecies about Jesus, and in that basket of prophecies, by some count, over 400 fulfilled in Jesus, all stated over 400 years before he ever came into earth. There are a couple of them that say there's going to be this prophet. There's going to be a prophet, another individual who's going to precede Jesus. He's going to precede God's eternal king. He's going to precede God in the flesh, the perfect God-man, the miracle worker. And he's going to be necessary. Now think about that. He's essential. 
even an individual who can perform miracles, like Jesus, would be ineffective if not preceded by someone who could get people ready for him. That's why John had to come. Even when God is coming into this world, he recognized there needed to be some preparation because our spiritual receptors are so damaged and broken by a variety of things in our lives that there needed to be heart preparation. I find that absolutely astonishing. You know, I like to think that Jesus shows up, he's standing in front of me, he does a couple of his miracle things, you know, that he does, walks on a little water, not in the winter, walks on a little water, you know, changes water into wine, for some of you that'd be a big deal, changes water into wine, because you like wine, never mind. All right, so, you know, he does one of his miracles, calms the storm, and it'd be like, okay, Jesus, man, I'm in, whatever, I mean, you're a miracle worker, I'm in. It's not that simple. God needed help. God needed help with people's hearts before he showed up. Why? How? Well, let me give you a simple illustration that maybe can help you understand this. Imagine a young girl growing up in your neighborhood. She's in Calgary. She's in a normal home. She lives in your neighborhood. She comes from a a solid family. They're, They're not believers, but it's a good family. It's balanced, parents are good parents, care about their kids. She goes to a good school. She has good friends. At age 11, she's sitting by her dad's side in a hospital after he's had a massive heart attack. And she's watching him, she doesn't know this yet, but these are gonna be his last moments alive. There's been a surgery, she's thinking dad's gonna live. And two days later, he's dead. And she doesn't have a lot of exposure to Christianity. She's got some people in her life. She, she's open to the idea of God. And, you know, she hears from her Christian friends, you know, all things work out for good for those who love. You know, it doesn't really seem to resonate. I just lost my dad. She goes to the funeral. There's some talk about God, even though her family hadn't really ever been in church much. And she concluded in her 11-year-old heart that if God is good, her experience doesn't make sense to, with that, and, and this good God allowed her dad to die at age 44, and she will be forever without him, and she wants nothing to do with that kind of a God. If that's God, she's done with God. She goes to university, and one of her electives is world religions. She just wants to see what's out there, and her teacher's an agnostic at best, and her response to that is, as she's given these evidences for four different major world religions and a few other cults and smaller religions, her agnostic professor sort of convinces her there really is no absolute truth, and if there was, there's no way to know. There's really no clear path to God if there even is a God. Religion is just sort of how we teach our kids to be moral, And she buys into that. And without her father in her life and some of the insecurity that came from not having him during her teenage years, she makes some bad choices and she looks for her dad and other young men and she gets pregnant and she's pregnant at 19 and so she makes another choice and she has an abortion. And her response to these situations, because she's a moral being made in the image of God, is she starts to feel some guilt, like, have I, have I broken some rules here? 
She's not a Christian. She's not really exposed to the Scriptures, but sort of the natural sense of guilt starts taking over, and she suppresses that with a conviction that right and wrong are really relative because that's what she sort of learned in her religion class, and there really are no absolutes, and so she just needs to sort of get over it. And then at age 25, she has a good Christian friend who introduces her to Jesus. And she learns about who Jesus was historically and what he can offer her and how he can change her life and forgiveness of sins and that there's only one way to God. And here's the problem. God is ready for her, but she's not ready for God. Now she's got three massive heart barriers that she's built into her life over 12 years or 14 years. The goodness of God. So Jesus is the Son of God. Are you talking about this God who took my father when I was 11? That Jesus? That he's, he's the Son of that God? He's in the Trinity with that God? That's his character, really? He lets those kinds of things happen to 11-year-old girls? The very idea of truth. Are you saying there really is only one way? It's only through Jesus? Because my university professor told me there's really no way to know what is true and religion is really just here to guide us morally and ethically because all the four major world religions have a lot of ethics in common. So really, why would I believe there's only one way to heaven? And she's also carrying this inner guilt about some of her sexual promiscuity and an abortion and she's just not sure what to do with that because if she's really going to come to Jesus, she's going to come to grips with choices she's made and she's not sure she wants to do that. And you can play a story like that over some different parts, seven billion different times because that's our world. It's a world of seven billion people who all build up barriers to God, who all have spiritual receptors that are flawed and broken because God is ready for everyone. But not everyone is ready for God. In fact, most people aren't. Second, John the Baptist fulfilled this heart prep prophecy. So this is a little bit redundant, but without John the Baptist immediately preceding Jesus, Jesus actually wouldn't have historic credibility. So just for a second, I just want to make this point. If John the Baptist doesn't show up and Jesus just shows up and he starts performing miracles and he claims to be born of a virgin and we have all those other stories without John the Baptist, we've got the wrong Messiah. John the Baptist had to precede Jesus. He had to fulfill these prophecies. Now what is the prophecy itself? Well, it actually came from an ancient custom, and I'm going to put it on the screen in a second. But when kings were going to travel, were going to travel through a territory that they governed, an edict commanding smooth roads would precede them. And, you know, you know what it's like with the freeze-thaw cycle in these climates like this. You know, we used to say there was two seasons back where we came from, winter and road repair. And so you've kind of got some of the same thing here. Actually, Calgary does a pretty good job on the roads, better than Minnesota, I must say. So the reality is there'd be a command to smooth out the roads because a king came with a military and social or political entourage. So this king needed and demanded sort of a minimal standard of roads and road work to be done before he came through. And so here actually is a reflection of that from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. So this is a common cultural issue. Can we get that up on the screen, please? There we go. The voice of one calling out 
clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. All right, that print and these glasses aren't working. All right, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, fill in the low spots, and every mountain and hill be made low, bring down the high spots, let the uneven ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. This is construction. This is road construction. It's preparation for the king. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Notice those phrases. It's a sequence of metaphors that relate constructing a road to heart prep. This is what John the Baptist was going to do. Ancient kings wanted a smooth path under their feet for their entourage, for their military. The Messiah, the Son of God, needed a smooth path into people's hearts. He needs those spiritual receptors to be fixed at some level, some openness created, and that is not automatic. It's not automatic. It's hard work because these barriers exist from a lifetime of, of disappointment or broken dreams or disappointment with God or, or hard things happening in life. God not coming through. Years of neglect affect this. Many hearts are simply not ready for Jesus. That's where John the Baptist came onto the scene. He is a significant figure in prophetic history. He was so popular in his era that people thought he was the Messiah. Well, I, we don't have exact numbers, but when you read the text surrounding John the Baptist and other texts as well, it seems that at a minimum, tens of thousands of people were responding to him. He was a big deal, maybe hundreds of thousands. He was seen by many as the Messiah, and he had to clarify, no, I'm not, I'm not that dude. I'm a different dude. And that's in the, in the Greek. I am a different dude. That dude, I'm not worthy to unloose his sandals. He, he's somebody way beyond me. I'm just trying to help you get ready for him. He recognized his role was one of heart prep. Somebody else is coming. So what did John do in people's lives? Third point, John's heart prep was to create a movement, in, his, in this case, of national repentance. Now this isn't gonna relate to us as well, but that's what his job was, and I'll talk about ours. The word repent there, because it's a word that John uses often, simply means to turn or to change direction, or it can mean to change one's mind. In fact, you'll find scriptures where it says God repented. If you've got a King James Version and you read through the book of Jonah, you'll see that God repented and chose not to destroy Nineveh after he was planning on doing it. He did it in response to their repentance and changing their minds and kind of confessing their sins. So if God is repenting, it doesn't mean there's something moral going on. It simply means a change of mind. So when we repent, we're changing our minds about our sin. We're going to turn our direction around. So that's what, that's what John the Baptist is doing. He's trying to get people to change their minds about their present moral and ethical condition and move to a more God-centered position. Now, but I want, you to, I want to describe sort of the, the ground that John the Baptist is dealing with because I'm so jealous of John the Baptist. Because this was a little bit what it was like for those of you who are a little older, maybe 40 or 50 some years ago in the Western world, and that ground has shifted. John was dealing with a nation of Israel who had God's laws and God's expectations. They had their Old Testaments, and they revered their Old Testaments. They believed there was only one true God. There was no pluralism in their culture. There was in Roman culture, 
But John is talking to, to the Jews. They're monotheists. They believe in one God, one true God. But they were a little rusty on obedience, all right? So they believe in the one true God. They've got the Old Testament. But they needed to brush up on the Ten Commandments a little bit. So that's what John is dealing with. Now, the role of a prophet was, was literally to call people back to obedience to the law. When we think of prophecy, what do we think of? Well, we think of the, the one, two, or three percent of what the prophet said, which had to do with foretelling the future. That's what we think. If I said, if I said I'm a prophet, which I'm not, but if I said I'm a prophet, uh, you would say, well, that means you're going to, you know, tell me when Jesus is coming back. Well, people have been getting that one wrong for 2,000 years, so I would hate to venture. But the reality is the role of the prophet was far less about telling the future and far more about calling people back to obedience to what God has already said. Almost, you know, 90-some percent of what they did was that. Calling people back to obedience to the law, reminding them of what the law said. And then there's that small percentage, I think it's about 1 to 3 percent, of foretelling the future. But it was a minor part of their job. So John the Baptist, most of his job is preaching Old Testament texts and getting people to repent. Because an obedient people who already believe in the true God would be ready for Messiah and the Son of God. Tens of thousands of people followed him. He was nationally or at least regionally famous. He didn't have much of a dress code going on. You know, and his diet was a little odd. He was eating odd things before it became popular among millennials. You know, he was sort of, he was sort of, I don't know what you would describe him as, but it was interesting. And he baptized everyone who wanted to follow this call to repentance. It wasn't Christian baptism. Jesus hadn't died again. People didn't know what Jesus would accomplish. It was a baptism of repentance. He had it easy. I'm jealous of John the Baptist. Not his diet and not his wardrobe, but I'm jealous of the ground he got to work in. It was easy compared to the world you live in. Now, it wasn't all easy for John the Baptist. He did lose his head. He was martyred. He was, uh, you know, beheaded. Uh, so that part wasn't really easy. But he was ministering to theists, people who believed in a god, monotheists, people who believed in one god. They were loyal to the Scriptures, so they had identified that god. They were looking for a Messiah. So when they found one that seemed qualified, they should have responded to him. And they wanted God to bless them. I mean, that's like perfect, fertile ground. You have a much harder job. And I want to spend our remaining time talking about that. First, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Everybody needs heart prep on the way to Jesus. If Israel in AD 30, okay, theists, monotheists who've identified the true God and are just a little rusty on their obedience. If they needed John the Baptist in their life, imagine how much more so everybody in our world needs somebody in their lives, needs a Christian in their lives to help to create fertile soil for an entrance of Jesus. Nothing has changed. Everybody needs heart prep on the way to Jesus. It's just so much harder. How much more important you are than John the Baptist. How much more important you are for your neighbor 
for your friend, for your parent, your relative, your child, than John the Baptist ever was. He walked into the friendliest ministry environment in the history of humanity. And you walk into one of the more complex and difficult. Nothing's changed. Everybody needs a John the Baptist in their life. Second, this is everybody's job. See, this is part of the evangelistic process, if I can call it that. It's, it's what I would call pre-evangelism, pre-conversion work. You know, if you have a person over here who's just, I'm going to use a sort of a scale, and there's actually a name for this scale. I, I, I would hesitate to say what it is. I want to say a Likert scale. I feel like that's wrong. Anyway, there's a, like, let's say you have a, an atheist, an absolute hostile atheist who teaches at the university on world religions, and he's an atheist, and you know, a lot of barriers. And he's, that's a minus 10 on the scale of faith. And you've got somebody at a point zero. That's a person who's making a commitment to Jesus today. And then you've got a plus 10. That's like a perfect person. They're fully sanctified. They're like Jesus. I mean, you might think, you know, somebody like uh, Billy Graham or somebody like that. Although if you read his wife's writings, it might not have been as good as um, you think. But anyway, uh, Billy Graham, just a great guy. We all respect him. Dee Dee Brushaber for marrying me and hanging with me all these years. You know, like a saint. We all recognize an absolute saint. She must be, all right? So you got your plus 10. The job of John the Baptist, the job of you, everybody's job is to help that person at minus 10 get to minus 9, to minus 8, to minus 7, to the point where when they hear the gospel for maybe the fifth or sixth or tenth time, they're willing to engage their will and cross a line of faith. It's everybody's job it's all the work that goes into the soil before the farmer plants the seed. And you might say, well, I don't That sounds like somebody with the gift of evangelism. That sounds like their job. Well, I've got some really bad news for you. Many of the spiritual gifts we see defined in the New Testament are also commands to all of us. You know, somebody has the gift of hospitality, that's great, but God commands all of us to be hospital, hospitable. Somebody might have the gift of mercy, but I think he commands mercy of all of us. Somebody might have the gift of evangelism where they're just better at it, but it's commanded of all of us. And, and hopefully we don't even need to go there because hopefully we care about the people around us enough that we do not want to see them in a Christless eternity. And whether we feel gifted or not, we've got to get in there. We just got to get in the game and we got to help move them from minus 10 to minus 8 to minus 6 to minus four, to a point where they're open to Jesus. Third, the ground we're working has shifted dramatically. Well, I probably covered this. We're not in John's world. We don't witness in a theocracy where everyone accepts the holy writings. There are thousands of voices giving bad advice about eternity right now, and we want to be seen as the one rational truth teller. I think about that, the competition for what people believe. The British ocean liner, the RMS Lusitania, was struck by a torpedo from a German submarine in 1915. It appears that in an effort to minimize panic, the captain, William Thomas Turner, created a false sense of assurance. Shortly after the torpedo struck the liner, a fellow passenger, Charles Laureate, heard a female passenger calling out, Captain, what do you want us to do? Author Eric Lyson writes, he replied, Stay right where you are, madam. She's all right. Ship is all right. 
going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Where do you get your information, she said. From the engine room, ma'am. But the engine room clearly had told him no such thing. Laureate and the woman now headed back toward the stern, and as they walked, they told other passengers what the captain had said. It's going to be okay. Second-class passenger Henry Needham may have encountered the pair, for he recalled that a passenger approaching from the direction of the bridge had shouted, Captain says the boat's not going to sink. That remark, Needham wrote, was greeted with cheers, and he said, I noticed many people who had been endeavoring to get a place in the lifeboats turned away in apparent contentment. It's going to be okay. We don't need the lifeboat. Turner's words merely confirmed what the passengers and crew already believed or wanted to believe, that no torpedo could cause the ship mortal damage. And of the 1,959 passengers aboard the Lusitania, 1,198 perished. And it wasn't necessary. Because they had a voice in their lives telling them, hey, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Don't worry about narrowing things down to the one God, one religion thing. Hey, all religions are good. They help you raise your kids in a moral way. There's not absolute truth. This is incredible. It's going to be okay. That's our world. Often there's no clear direction towards God from the places designed for it. The church is not theologically unified in any way, even on major issues. Much of Western Protestantism doesn't even say that Jesus is divine. Thankfully, those denominations are shrinking while the evangelical counterparts are growing. People don't believe in one way. They don't believe in absolute truth. They expect a God who never disappoints. You have a hard job. The ground we're working is shifted, but, but it's our job. It, it's the world we live in, and we care about these people. So finally, don't be discouraged. After I've depressed you, I say don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. It's always been a long-term effort. It always has been. You know, I remember when I was growing up, and I don't know if this is just something they say. I want to know who they are. Who are they? You know, we get to heaven, I want to find they. They say that it takes seven exposures uh, to the gospel for a person to cross the line of faith. Now, I remember they said that, you know, back when I was young. So 39 minus 10. So when I was, you know, when I was like 10, so 30 years ago, they said that it takes seven exposures to the gospel. It's not lying if nobody believes you, by the way. All right, so they say about seven exposures to the gospel. I don't believe that's true anymore. It can't be because people have so much shifted away from a belief in the West in a Judeo-Christian worldview. So it's a lot harder. So it takes a lot to catch it. I was, I was talking to a I was talking to one of our staff members the other day. We were talking about how people catch COVID. And we were actually having a little debate about how people catch COVID. And, uh, and we, we were discussing this because the question was, how much do you have to be exposed to just, you know, sort of a molecule versus a group of molecules? And so if you skip COVID and talk about the flu, it's my understanding that, you know, just having somebody cough in your direction, it, you, whether you get something has often to do with how much exposure, not necessarily just one molecule, but, you know, sort of a wave of them. And, and probably depending how vulnerable you are. So you're more likely to catch something with a higher level of exposure. Well, it's the same thing with the gospel. 
And for some people, it may mean, it may mean 20 conversations or 50 conversations. And the Bible kind of talks about this in 1 Corinthians. Paul said, you know, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave them. But they recognize there's this, this journey towards faith that people are on. So what ground are you working? What ground are you working today? I remember when I was young, grr, and I was in the gym with one of my weightlifting buddies named Jerry Malagrino, who was just a monster, by the way. I mean, he'd throw 360 pounds on a bench press and start pumping them off, you know, and I was like, no matter how strong you are, you felt like a wimp next to Jerry Malagrino. And over on the other side of the gym was Chris Jenigas. Chris Jenigas looked like an advertisement for a tattoo parlor. He had tattoos everywhere, and some of them were like rated PG-13, you know, on the nudity scale. And so we'd go over and talk to Chris, and I used to say to Chris, I'd be like, Chris, man, when you, if you want to get married, there's a good chance your wife's going to want those gone, and Jerry and I would be happy to help carve some of them off you right now. You know, that's my way of warming up to people. They get used to it. In a weight room, it works. It wouldn't work here, but it works in a weight room. So we just kind of teased Chris, and I became his friend, and we started talking, and I tried to witness to Chris, and finally Chris came to church. And Chris felt so far from God that he came to church and literally sat in the parking lot and couldn't come in the building. He couldn't cross that barrier. But he did eventually. And he came to faith. And now he's married and raising kids and following God. And I'm telling you, Chris was the kind of person you would expect to be far from God but we worked the soil. You know, gave him a hard time, teased him about his tattoos, offered to do, you know, surgery on him, told him about God. And he came to faith. It was soil we had to work. Today, my soil, it just moved in a building, a condo building, and it's my soil's the gym and the condo building, which evidently the people are at at five, six, seven in the morning. I go down in the afternoon, nobody's ever there. There's card night in the condo building. I didn't realize, I mean, it's not a 50-plus building, but I think I brought the average age down pretty significantly. There's card night. There's happy hour on Fridays. I'm going to be at happy hour. I mean, don't you ask me what I'm drinking. It'll probably be Pepsi, but I'll be there at happy hour. Why? Because I care about these people. That's my new ground. There's coffee on Saturday mornings. I know a couple of people in the bank down in Signal Hill. I know their life stories. I know one of them stood or sat in a room while people in her home country shot her husband in front of her and her children. She's, she's part of the ground I'm working. That, that's my ground. What's your ground? Where are you a John the Baptist in somebody's life because it's your job and God needs you to do it? Because people's spiritual receptors are broken. And you're the answer. They need Jesus, but they need you first. God, we thank you for your word. And I pray that you would help each one of us to recognize not just that you need us, but that you can use us. The incredible role that we can play. The privilege of being involved in helping people connect with their creator and the God of the universe. They just need somebody alongside of them to give some answers when we know them or to say we don't know, but to help them, to love them, to encourage them so that they can find you. They can find you. So their hearts can be prepared 
for you. Help us to be faithful to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.